0: You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. In this
1: episode, join us for a special tribute honoring Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and author George F. Will around the release of his new book, American Happiness and Discontent, The Unruly Torrent, 2008 to 2020. You'll hear from Washington Post columnists, editors, and broadcast legends on Will's storied career, contributions to American journalism, and outsized impact on the conservative movement in
2: the United States. Let's listen. Good afternoon. I'm Michael Duffy, opinions editor at large at The Washington Post. Thank you for joining us today as we turn a spotlight on the work of our Post colleague, George Will, who turned 80 this year and has a new book out this week. And we will be talking to George a little bit later on about his book with him but first I want to go to a roundtable of veteran journalists um, who are with us today all uh, on I guess yes you can see them now Uh, first and first among equals uh, Ruth Marcus deputy editorial page editor of the post and a columnist in her own right columnist Eugene Robinson and a Pulitzer Prize winner in 2009 and Bill Kristol a longtime political strategist and editor-at-large at The Bulwark thank you guys for joining us today Well, we all know George and we've all worked with George and we all read George. Uh, He began working at the Post in 1974 and just three years later, won the Pulitzer Prize. Ruth, uh, I'm going to start with you. You oversee all of our signed opinion pieces. What do you think, if you could even take a crack at this question, what do you think the impact of George has been on not just our pages, but also commentary in general in America over the last 50 years? You want to try that one?
3: There's so many different things to say, but I'll try a few. Um, the first is um, that some people think that being a columnist is uh, a, a kind of like an oil well that runs dry. You've had an idea and you've, you've lived up your usefulness. George Will is proof for those of us who've been writing a column for a while and want to keep doing it, that that is simply not true. And the reason it's not true is George's mind and George's interests and George's ability to go out and do reporting. He is just constantly seeking out new people to write about, new ideas to feature. And while he is a conservative, and um, which means being very wary about changing your principles and changing ideas, um, he has changed his views on some things over time. For example, the role of the courts, which is something I write about a lot. He no columnist um, in America, not no less on our pages, um, wrote less about Donald Trump but had more impact in terms of when he did, um, and I say Dane because I begged him to do it more, when he did decide to write about Donald Trump, George Will's words thundered. And that gets to the last thing I'll say, though, I think I could go on at enormous length. George Will's use of language is an inspiration to all of us. He doesn't use cliches. He finds fantastic words to come up with. And he doesn't um, write down to his readers. He thinks they can deal with complex sentences. Though I think he wrote about a 69-word Murray Kempton one. I think that's the right columnist. That was a little bit long for me but he believes that readers can keep up with complicated ideas, erudite language, and um, complicated sentences, and um, and they've proven him right for many years now.
2: Jane, it's no secret that your political perspective probably differs somewhat from George's, uh, but you've said that uh, when you first yeah. started as a columnist, uh, he offered not only support, but some, some good advice. Do you remember what it was?
4: Well, look, he was a um, he was a, an incredibly generous colleague. Um, a couple after I started writing my column in 2005, a couple months later, I got a phone call, and Mr. Will would like to have lunch. And so I, great. Well, it, I I don't think it'll come as a surprise that it, it, in in those days he had lunch at the same restaurant at the same table every day because that's a George Will thing to do. Uh, so I arrived at uh, this uh, bistro in Georgetown. And uh, he said, oh, you know, Jim Robinson, well, you know, I, I, I disagree with you on everything, but you write a good column. And he was he was very generous um, about uh, talking to a, a rookie about uh, how to do this, because I wanted to know how, how, by then, he had been doing his column already for Thirty years, and I was—I I wanted to know how he managed to keep it so fresh, uh, and and also how he managed to, to just write so elegantly every time. And and he he couldn't give me the 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 secret of his elegance, but he but he did uh, tell me how he thought about his columns over time, how he um, combined his um, reporting how he thought about the trips that he took um, uh, and how they factored into the columns and how he... It was it was just a, sort of a masterclass in, in how to do this. Uh, at one point, he said something um, that I thought was really odd. He said, you know, I just don't know how anybody lives without a column. And I thought that was the oddest thing anyone had ever said to me. I told people about it for months afterwards, this weird thing... George Will, you know, a that George Will would be a great guy, and, and second, this weird thing he had said, uh, and of course now having done the column for sixteen years, I totally get it. I totally understand uh, uh, exactly what he meant. How could how could you let all this stuff happen and all these uh, these these bizarre people uh, emerge into the public consciousness and and, and not write about it? Um, what would you do? You would explode. And uh, and I think, um, so I'm glad that George uh, continues to do what he does, does and, and, and doesn't have to explode. <laughs> uh, Bill, uh,
2: I think you probably agree, uh, George is a died in the World Conservative um, and has made a career out of, you know, writing about principle in politics. Uh, and that sometimes has taken him or put him at odds uh, with the Republican Party. He famously left the GOP and, uh, The middle of 2016, uh, uh, after then House Speaker Paul Ryan uh, endorsed Donald Trump for president, you yourself have uh, vehemently opposed uh, Trump's nomination. I want to share a clip from Fox News Sunday around that time when he was explaining to uh, anchor Chris Wallace uh, why he uh, was uh, taking uh, leave of
0: the party. Let's take a listen to that. I left it for the same reason I joined it in 1964 when I voted for Barry Goldwater. I joined it because I was a conservative. I leave for the same reason that I'm a conservative. Give you a timeline. Shortly after Trump became the presumptive nominee, he had a summit meeting with Paul Ryan where they stressed their common principles and their vast shared ground, which is much more important than their differences. I thought that was puzzling, doubly so, because Paul Ryan still didn't endorse him. After Trump went after the Mexican judge from northern Indiana, then Paul Ryan endorsed him. And I decided that, in fact, this is not my party anymore. Uh, Bill, how was that uh, statement, that column, that
2: departure uh, felt across the Republican Party?
4: It should have been
1: felt more, Michael, but uh we have a different Republican Party than the one George uh was mostly uh friendly to, though George has always been willing to be critical of including presidents he really admired. I, I served in the Reagan administration, that's when I came to Washington in '85. I had known George before. And he wrote some very tough columns and, and has always been unafraid to speak his mind, which is, I think Ruth and Jane would agree, the first, the first thing that a, a good columnist has to do. Um, but you know, I think uh, whoever s- took the selected the title for our little discussion here, George Will, American conservative, that was a very well selected uh, phrase for George, because you know conservatism. There's a lot of there are there are a lot of conservatives in America who've looked back to, to Great Britain, kind of Anglophile conservatives, have looked to Europe, thrown an alter conservatism, uh, looked to the South, kind of agrarian conservatism. Those are all you know, traditions, some of them better than others and with, with good and bad aspects, but a lot of conservatism had that flavor. George has not been that kind of conservative. The other side of it, American though, a lot of American conservatism has been in practice a kind of populism uh, rebellion against elites. Again, some of it, I would argue, moderately healthy and uh, invigorating, but at times can go off the rails and has really gone off the rails in the last uh, 6, seven, five, 6 years. Uh, George really is an American conservative, and I think that's what makes him so refreshing and interesting and important. I mean, genuinely an important figure when people write the history, uh, American intellectual history, the history of American conservatism. A lot of, as I say, a lot of people in the conservative movement look to Europe. A lot of others look to the people. Uh, George really looked to American principles and to a sophisticated understanding of what makes for a successful modern liberal democracy, some of the temptations that have to be resisted, uh, but he's always been unafraid to uh, uh, call it as he sees it based on those principles. And he, he did so uh, with respect to Donald Trump, obviously.
2: Gene, about a year later, uh, George wrote what became a very widely republished column that asserted uh, that President Trump uh, really suffered from a kind of disability. Let's uh, let's look at a passage from that column. Um, I'm going to read it, although I think it's on the screen. It is urgent for Americans to think and speak clearly about President Trump's inability to do either. This seems to be not a disinclination but a disability. It is not merely the result of intellectual sloth, but of an untrained mind bereft of information and married to stratospheric self-confidence. <laughs> um, this sounds now, three or four years later, more like a warning than uh, a, a uh-huh. diagnosis.
4: The, you know, the thing about that column, which I just reread yesterday um, in its entirety, is that every you could have picked any sentence from that column uh, to, to, to as a pull quote to to illustrate the whole thing. I mean it is it is a brilliantly written column. It was even for George uh, who is uh, I think um, the most elegant, writer among the experienced columnists uh uh who've been doing this for for a while uh at at, the, at these levels of american journalism uh, i mean george it, it's it i just marvel at his writing but this particular column was just one in which everything uh aligned and uh and you, you uh i marvel at it um uh, but yes it was it was not just a, a warning it was such a complete uh, and penetrating diagnosis of, of of Donald Trump but written in such an entertaining yet caustic uh yet delightful way it was ju- it's just a classic of the form uh and I, I wish I'd written it.
2: <laughs> that, that's the highest praise any writer can give. Wished I'd written. Uh, Ruth, uh, reading this now, what does that make you think? And can you, I'm going to go out on a limb and ask you, uh, what's it like to edit it, George Will?
3: <laughs> uh, okay, I, I'm going to give uh, a story that predates that column. I had been encouraging George to write when the spirit moved him um, and that we would get it out to all of his readers, his readers in newspapers across the country, in addition to his Washington Post readers. So as we were trying to pick our jaws up off the floor on Inauguration Day 2017, my phone rang. I think it was a phone call, and it, the um, George's assistant said, Mr. Will wants to know if you might be able to consider taking approximately 300 words from him on the most dreadful inaugural address in history. And i allowed us how I would be very, very <laughs> eager. Get that, and within about 20 minutes, 320 360 perfectly crafted James Madison quoting words arrived that (laughs) set the stage for George's coverage of the Trump presidency, which was, as I said, very deliberately restrained and calculated. He doesn't like to chase the soccer ball that everybody else is chasing, um, but boy, when he kicks it. He kicks it good and hard. And so the best way to um, edit George Will is to let George be George um, and to go off and write about the people and Supreme Court cases and issues that nobody else is writing about because that's what keeps him um, going and that's what makes his column so endlessly interesting. I'll just tell one more story which is um, goes to Jean's point about George not understanding how anybody cannot write a column. This is a George Will vacation. George Will says he's going on vacation and his direct editor says Will's going on vacation. And I say, okay, so we'll be down to three or four columns this week. And lo and behold, except for one vacation that I remember where he did indulge his wife by um, stopping himself from writing columns, he literally can't. He just Sees things, they intrigue him, they annoy him, they amuse him, and he needs to share it with us. And thank God for that.
4: Hey, Bill,
2: I appreciate what you said also about um, George criticizing other Republican presidents besides Trump. He could be uh, withering about uh, George Herbert Walker Bush, for example, when the when he wanted to be. But I wanted to pin you down <laughs> a little, a little more on uh, what sort of conservatism, or maybe brand of conservative, maybe he just transcends the brand. But uh, can you just uh, talk a little bit more about where he fits into the taxonomy?
1: Yeah, I mean, George is, like all good thinkers, is not a simple thinker, and he's changed his mind on some things, and who wouldn't over 50 years? Uh, but he, he, I, he and I have discussed this many times because I come from a slightly different place. I was more of a Cold War liberal who became a conservative uh, with Reagan and so forth. George really was a Goldwater conservative, limited government, constitutionalism, very dubious about. Good works by government, uh, dubious about big government, uh, less of an international do-gooder than someone like me was, was again kind of cautious about that sort of thing. Yet he mm-hmm. he's had a very coherent world view. Obviously, if you're intelligent, when you look at current institutions and, and debates, you've changed your judgment sometimes about where you would like them to end up. So that was a very important part. It was never, you know, there was always a huge populist part of conservatism. There were many other parts. I wouldn't say, George's maybe is a little too astringent and strict and demanding to have ever been the most popular part of conservatism, to be honest, but an extremely important part because it's the part that kind of keeps you from just chasing, uh, to use Ruth's uh, metaphor, the latest soccer ball or falling in, you know, head over heels for some, you know, crackpot idea that's that's popular for a month or for a year or for five years. You know, George has really had his uh, is that a very a long view, and that's what conservatives are supposed to have, right? And I yeah. think in that respect, the fact that he is so now at odds, honestly, with so much of contemporary American conservatism, says a lot about contemporary American conservatism. And it's bad for American conservatism. George was never going to be the the you know the only voice, and he, as I say, he's maybe a little too demanding to be even the the main voice, but a terribly important voice. Uh, and it's very bad for the country, in my opinion, as well as for American conservatism that conservatism has drifted so far away from George's uh, principles.
2: Gene, do you want to uh, add your voice here as to what happened to conservatism that that George uh, spent so so long trying to build? He and others
4: no i mean conservat- Donald Trump happened to conservatism and 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 Donald Trump may be more of a symptom than than the root cause of it, but what you know that's another whole program the fact is conservatism left. Uh, George will uh, uh, the conservative uh, American conservatism left George will. he is who he is. Uh, yes, he has changed his position on some issues over over the years um, uh, to the better actually he, he finally said in a column um, recently that that humans are changing the climate um, which he didn't used to think was happening um, but um, but he's uh, you know he's never been in anybody's pocket. Um, and he's always he had there's an honesty about his column uh that's just uncompromising and even when I think he's wrong, um I just admire um uh, I admire him his courage and I admire his his writing, especially, which is just um just ridiculously good, Ruth, We
2: got about a minute left. Uh- I was gonna ask you one last thing, you know, whenever George's columns post, we know that they are routinely among the most read that day. Um, what makes his readers so um, devoted? And and is there does he attract a wider variety uh, simply because of how long he has been doing it?
3: I think that he attracts readers because he respects readers. As I said earlier, he doesn't um, talk down to them. He uses big words he doesn't write the same column all the time. Uh, he goes out and tells them things that they didn't know or about people that they didn't know about. But I, I think that the main way in which he's respectful to readers is that he's on the team of ideas, ideas that have changed in some sense over time but are really um, grounded in the traditional conservative values and beliefs that Bill talked about earlier. and so. He's not on the Republican team. He's certainly not on the Democratic team. He's willing to, I think this is a George Will word, coruscate escape Republicans and Democrats when he <laughs> thinks they're wrong. And the, the most important quality for a columnist is, I think, intellectual honesty and intellectual consistency. So that when the people you might be more um, ideologically aligned with do bad things, you're willing to go after them for it. And when the people you're less ideologically aligned with do good things, things that you agree with, you're willing to praise them for it. If you don't have intellectual dishonest, if you don't have intellectual honesty, um, you're not a columnist, you're a partisan, and George Will isn't a partisan.
2: Well said. Three pros on a four. Thank you all. You've all been great, but we're out of time. Um, uh, But thank you again for joining us. I'm joined now by my colleague, uh, George
0: Will. Uh, thank you for joining us, George. Glad to be with you, gosh. This is fun. Uh, <laughs> uh, this
2: is the week that your latest book, I think it's your 16th, came out American Happiness and Discontents The Unruly Torrent, 2008 to 2020. It's a collection of essays and columns from the last dozen years or so. Uh, Tell us uh, why you picked that title, please.
0: Uh, It comes from Ortega Gasset, who I'm reading uh, uh, a lot. He's the author of of, uh, a number of books in Spanish. I'm reading him for my 17th book that I'm in the process of writing, People Who Had Intelligent, Affectionate Worries About Democracy. And uh, the torrent is unruly because no one rules it. And basically, conservatives don't want the torrent rule. We like the idea of, of uh, uncontrolled things. Someone said the story of the Bible reduced to one sentence is God created man and woman and promptly lost control of events. Conservatives like it that way. We like the, the, the turmoil, the churning of the spontaneous order of our kind of society.
2: I want to read a part of a, uh, an, uh, an excerpt from the book. From the introduction of the book that we published uh, yesterday in the Washington Post, uh, it has been well said that the United States is the only nation founded on a good idea, the proposition that people should be free to pursue happiness as they define it. In recent years, however, happiness has been elusive for this dyspeptic nation in which too many people think and act as tribes and define their happiness as some other tribe's unhappiness. As a quintessentially American voice, that of Robert Frost, said, the only way out is through. Perhaps this information or the information, the reasoning, and I hope the occasional amusements in newspaper columns can help readers think through and thereby diminish our current discontents. Uh, It sounds to me like you're saying uh, even at this time of division, uh, you can still pursue happiness in America. It
0: just hasn't gotten easier. Is that fair? I think that is fair. Uh, I, I think most Americans are busy pursuing happiness and raising children and doing other things, and they really do not hang on events in Washington. And alas, they don't hang on the words of columnists. But that's part of the fun. you know. I, I don't think most Americans read newspapers anymore, and most of those who do do not read columns. Now, in a way, that's bad, and maybe we should get Mr. Biden, when he's done mandating this and that, to mandate that they all read columnists. <laughs> he will find somewhere in Article 2 the power to do this. But uh, it's liberating in a way, in the following sense. That means that those who do read columns, and reading a column is, is optional, they come to the op-ed page because they're full of interest. And if they're full of interest, they're probably full of ideas and opinions themselves. What that means is you can write, assuming a great deal of uh, a pantry full of information on their part and as as Ruth stressed a moment ago you don't need to write down to them you can write up to them really Uh, and you're only asking them to bear with you for 750 words but because they're an intellectually upscale audience you can choose your words and use nuance and intimation and get a lot done in 750 words Ruth by the way mentioned uh, I sometimes use words that are not on the tip of everyone's tongue. I think I crashed, my column crashed the Webster's website when I defined, uh, I called Mike Pence our oleogenous vice president. But look it up, it's the perfect word, I'm sorry. Find a better one for, for Mike Pence.
2: I, I want to talk a little bit about the craft because whether people read columns or not, and I think they do, they are very curious about how people put them together. You've written two at least... A week for the last 50 years that's about four or five million words not counting the books talk to us if you can uh, a little bit about uh, how you decide what to write about on a given day and and particularly how do those writing days typically go
0: well uh, when I first started this I asked my friend Bill Buckley what I now know to be the most commonly asked question of a columnist how do you think of things to write about Bill said the world irritates me three times a week Well, the world irritates me or piques my curiosity or more often than not amuses me several times a week, a hundred times a year. Uh, So that's easy. You know, it was said of Napoleon that he could not look at a landscape without seeing a battlefield. And if you're in this business for long, you you get to the point, it seems to me, where you you look around and the world is just chock full of column topics, they keep coming at you. But you you kind of have to like to write to do this. I have a metabolic urge to write. I can't stop. It's said that when Henry James was on his deathbed, his eyes were closed, but his hand on top of the sheet was going like this as with a pen. Uh, I hope to be that way.
2: We've just come through the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Looking back on it now with a bit of hindsight, Ah, uh, did those attacks in some way uh, set the set the stage for the unruly torrent that would follow in the 12 years you you've included in this book?
0: They did indeed, because we reacted strongly. We reacted uh, some in some ways precipitously, and uh, we we, we th- what was commonly said then is everything has changed. Well, everything never changes all at once. There, there's an Tremendous inertia in the world and continuity. And I think we neglected that, particularly with the, the 2003 invasion of Iraq. Uh, again, a, a certain sense of, of, of measuredness would have helped there. It, uh, I, with a sense of measuredness, I think that's one of the advantages. I'm looking for all the others. One of the advantages of turning <laughs> is, is that you look back and try to remember what had had you so lathered up about events in the Carter administration, for example. Uh, There's not that much earth shaking that goes on because the earth really doesn't shake by what we do that often.
2: Uh, There's a report in the Post today, George, that one in 500 Americans uh, has died as a result of the pandemic. At least, uh, as we're experiencing in this country, could do you think the, the COVID-19 could have a similarly large um, impact on our country? From if we look back on it, 20 years from now,
0: I think, know, an, I think it'll have an impact on us as individuals, and perhaps then collectively as a country. In this sense, what made the AIDS epidemic of the early 1980s so shocking was that the salt vaccine and the polio paradigm had convinced a lot of Americans that this constant scourge of human history, plagues and pandemics, had been conquered and removed from human experience, that technological pharmacological silver bullets had banished this recurring curse of mankind. And we were reminded by AIDS, and now we've been reminded by uh, COVID-19, that, we are never going to be safe, that life is always going to be risky, the world is always going to be dangerous. We forgot that in foreign policy at the, after the Berlin Wall came down, we entered that little parenthesis of uh, our holiday from history. We tended to say, well, again, got that over with, we're done with wars and we're done with a dangerous world. Turned out not to be so. That's why uh, both the pandemic and 9-11, And it's sort of fitting that we're in in a sort of second wave of the pandemic as we experience the 20th anniversary of 9/11. We're both summons, uh, abrupt summons, back to reality.
2: Uh, With all of the tumult, um, torrent, the the, are you concerned about the sustainability of the conservative cause? With all that's
0: (laughs) going. Yes, I am because uh, conservatism requires self-denial it requires saying not everything can be had all at once uh, you know it's been well said that the first rule of economics is scarcity is real choices have to be made the first rule of politics is ignore the first rule of economics and both sides are doing that now with, with a vengeance uh, so yes i'm uh, I, I think the transaction costs of democracy are always with us but they're getting a little steep and now that we we measure them in trillions not in billions
2: Uh, Can you talk a bit about where you think the Republican Party is headed, or at least can you make a guess at their vector? uh...
0: Well, so far they are, uh, shall we say, no more responsive to every sulfuric belch from Mar-a-Lago. But uh, here's where I uh, have a slight burst of uncharacteristic optimism. Mr. Trump is an entertainer. And one thing an entertainer cannot be is predictable and boring. And it turns out, I think more and more people are cottoning on to the fact that he has one pedal on the organ and he's worked it for 30 years with very few changes. The one the changes that it used to be Japan was going to eat our lunch and now it's the Chinese. But other than that tweak, he's been saying the same thing. And I do think the great human capacity for boredom is going to help us here that uh, he at the end of the day he's going to be a bore and uh, he w- he may actually slink off stage uh, the Democrats meanwhile have uh, only the thinnest
2: uh, grip on the levers of government uh, this at this moment. Uh, do you think they have played their they're playing their cards well
0: I think they're making uh, a mistake in 1933 Lyndon, uh, or Franklin Roosevelt with the New Deal changed the relationship of the citizen to the central government in a fundamental way, but did so after the 1932 landslide. And he did so a country frightened that they might be condemned to permanent depression. In 1965, after my man Goldwater was routed by uh, Lyndon Johnson, uh, Johnson went have said about, as he saw it, completing the New Deal. But he did so after, again, a landslide. Uh, Mr. Biden is undertaking an enormous expansion of the government, a government much less trusted today than the government was in 1965, when 77% of the American people in a poll said they trusted the government to do the right thing most of the time. Today, about 17% say that. So I think they're making the Lyndon Johnson mistake here. Uh, and I think they're, they're, they're apt to pay for it, whether or not inflation is ignited. And my favorite section of the
2: book uh, is called Farewells, Mostly Fond, uh, which is a series of uh, lyrical elegies about people, in, mostly in politics, but not entirely, who would, did walk among us but don't any longer. Um, bipartisan uh, in every respect. Why is it, I mean, you included them um, a number uh, Of these pieces and I was just going to ask you why is it important to recall those in public life regardless of what team they were on
0: well uh, as my wife said I'm a Washingtonian this is hometown for me now after all these years and this is where the local industry is politics and I happen to like politics we can't live without it we never have never shall and I rather like politicians who are good at their craft, legislative mechanics, if you will. Uh, so it's important to remember that a lot of good people come here, and most of them, uh, the vast majority, are, are, are uh, not corrupt. They are public spirited. And it's worth remembering that very important people have walked the bricks of Georgetown, from which I'm now speaking to you. Uh, uh, so it's it, It's it's nice to remember people who deserve to be praised. Uh, Harvey Mansfield, a Harvard political philosopher known as the Harvard conservative and a great friend both of uh, Bill Kristol and of mine, uh, Harvey Mansfield said the point of education is to learn how to praise. Everyone's good at disparaging nowadays. And critics, some seem to think that a critic must by definition be negative. In fact, praise is important because it means you are saying people have measured up to standards. And in doing so, you're affirming the fact that there actually are standards. And uh, it's important to remember that and to remember people who measured up. Well, thank you. We
2: are out of time. George Will, congratulations on American happiness and discontents. Thank you for joining us. We were privileged to have the, the excerpt uh, uh, in the post yesterday. Um, it's been an honor to speak with you today and I look forward to what comes next. And I'm sure there's a column due in 24 hours. If you haven't already written it. It's written. So it's you. all written. Thanks. Thought,
4: thank all you again right.
2: to, uh, to everyone else. Um, thanks for joining us. Uh, please go to WashingtonPostLive.com to check out other interviews that are coming, uh, in the next few days, register first and find out what else is on. I'm Michael Duffy. Thank you as always for watching.
3: Thanks for
0: listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs,
3: visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.